I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, Dr. Anatole Levin, director of the Eurasia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, returns to discuss his recent visit to Ukraine, as well as issues related to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, such as recent news that the chief of the infamous Russian private military company Wagner Group has taken to attacking Russian military elites. What does this mean, and is it possibly indicative of a succession struggle brewing in Russia? All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views, and now on to the conversation with Dr. Anatole Levin. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy having on, uh, Dr. Anatole Levin, who is the Director of Eurasian Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Uh, so, Dr. Levin, I wanted to have you back on the show to discuss uh, some of the latest developments in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but before we get too deeply into that, I think you were in Ukraine recently, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I spent uh, three weeks there in in March um, in Kiev, uh, in the towns north of Kiev, uh, which were partly occupied by Russia at the start of the war, uh, in the city of Dnipro and in Zaporizhia. In Zaporizhia, I had an accident and ended up in hospital there for a week, uh, which was rather interesting um, because uh, the town was under Russian bombardment, though I, I really cannot say that it was very, um, very dangerous or intense, but it gave me the chance to to talk to a lot of ordinary Ukrainians about their views and experiences. 
something which I think uh, too many Western journalists either don't have the chance to do or don't do. Could you talk a little bit about what the general sense of uh, Ukrainians on the ground was while you were there? Well, uh, there was no support, and I mean no support in, in anyone I talked to for the Russian invasion. I mean, perhaps um, there may be uh, you know, in, in, somewhere among Russians and Russian speakers in Ukrainian society, but if so, nobody said that to me. They were all strongly opposed to the invasion. They all believed in defending Ukraine. They were all of them strongly hostile to Putin. Uh, where, uh, however, in private, you saw uh, differences was on two issues. Uh, the first is whether Ukraine should at some stage accept a compromise peace or at least a ceasefire, which would leave some territory in Russian hands, uh, at least say the territory that Russia has annexed or occupied since 2014, Crimea and Eastern Donbass. Now, according to a number of opinion polls, while a, a, a sizable majority say that no, all the lost land should be returned to Ukraine, uh, a considerable minority uh, say that no, I mean, in the last resort to end the war and to save the rest of Ukraine um, and keep it out of Russian hands, Ukraine should be prepared to do a deal. And that was what I found in my conversations. Most people said, no, we've, Ukraine must get everything back. Uh, but uh, a sizable minority said, no, we, we, we need to, we, we will need to do some kind of deal in the end. Uh, and, you know, pointed out that Russia's um, hopes at the start of the war to conquer the whole of Ukraine had been completely defeated. Now, I have to say, though, that it was very striking that the people who said that, um, none of them, and here I'm talking about you know, altogether several dozen people I talked to, um, but none of them were willing to say that on the record or in public. Because, I mean, there is a considerable degree uh, of, um, shall we say, both official and private discouragement in Ukraine of differing from the official line on that. <coughs> the repression uh, is not as bad as in Russia, but it's by no means absent. And a journalist who says that will most likely lose their job. Several journalists said that to me and might very well receive a, a visit from the Ukrainian Secret Service, the SPU. So that was the first thing. The, the second thing was that in Kiev and the, <coughs> the areas to the north, especially as you can imagine, the areas that had been occupied by Russia and where Russian troops committed considerable numbers of atrocities. Uh, there was um, intense hatred, uh, not just of Putin and the Russian government and the Russian military, but of the Russian people in general. And you had, uh, very understandably, but extremely chauvinist and even racist language directed at Russians in general described as Asiatic savages, mongoloid barbarians, and the Russian language described as innately, you know, racist and imperialist and fascistic. 
Uh, that uh, I did not find to, to be the case, uh, um, very understandably, in the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine that I visited, uh, notably Zaporizhia. Um, once again, I mean, not, not surprisingly, after they'd been bombarded by Russia for more than a year, no, no sympathy for the invasion, no sympathy at all for Putin, no sympathy for the Russian armed forces, but uh, quite literally, all, all, all but one of the people I talked to in Zaporizhia had close Russian relatives, um, were partly Russian themselves, mother, grandmother, grandfather, um, uh, and in a, a great majority of cases had close relatives um, working in Russia, uh, either in uh, the eastern Donbass, which revolted against Ukraine in 2014, uh, or they had moved to work in Russia, either under the Soviet Union uh, or in the years since, because the Russian economy for many years was doing so much better than the Ukrainian. Um, I was amused, I must say, my driver um, was a strong, vehement Ukrainian nationalist. Um, it turned out in conversation that his mother had moved to Moscow to work, um, and not in the distant past, only a few years back, I mean, after 2014. And I asked why, and he replied, well, the, the salary was three times as high. So, and these people, you know, they talk to their relatives, they disagree, uh, but they do not um, dehumanize them, shall we say, in a way that is characteristic of, of Ukrainians elsewhere to the north and east. So that was a, a significant difference as well, I felt. And one which has the potential to cause serious difficulties in future. I'm not saying that it will, and certainly the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine I mean, those that remain in Ukraine and haven't been you know, conquered by Russia um, at the moment completely lack political leadership, partly because it was discredited by the invasion, but partly because it's been driven out or is under arrest. Uh, they voted chiefly for Zelensky in the last elections. Um, they are not altogether happy with him today. They have nowhere else to go, of course, but um, but one could well imagine that if, um, when peace comes, if it ever does, and these um, present measures by the Ukrainian government to basically abolish the Russian language, abolish teaching in Russian, writing in Russian, go on, um, it could be serious problems for, for Ukraine. Something I wanted to ask you about uh, with regards to the things you just spoke of, uh, you know, with uh, Russian Ukrainians uh, and and other Ukrainians that have maybe uh, be becoming very vehement in their sort of anti-Russian views to the point of, you know, sort of this, oh, the Russians are the Asiatic hordes mentality. Uh, do, do you think any of that is tempered in any way by the fact that there are uh, Russian Ukrainians that, you know, they're not supporting Russia on this, they are supporting Ukraine? Well, it ought to be. Um... It ought also to be tempered, as, by the way, a former advisor to um, Zelensky, um, Alexei Alex, um, Alterovich, has said, it ought to be tempered by the fact that, you know, if, if Ukraine does want to get back Crimea and the eastern Donbass, 
uh, and even you know <clears throat> perhaps the areas <coughs> the russian speaking areas occupied by russia since last year um it's not doing its cause much good by accusing the russian population there of being you know subhuman savages um and indeed uh, another advisor to um uh, to, to, to Zelensky from the extreme nationalist camp um, has basically, you know, accepted this challenge and said, uh, "The hell with it! Uh, no, we're not going to." Um, uh, he, he said, "You know, offer offer the population of Crimea a smile. Um, we are going to arrest or drive out anyone, you know, who has supported the Russian rule um, and who disagrees with." You know, Ukrainian national policies. Uh, so, um, yeah. I, I'm curious because I know there's going to be some people listening to this that are going to immediately assume or, or say something along the lines of respond by saying, you know, that it sounds like you're pushing the, the line that Putin had about uh, there's Ukrainian Nazis everywhere in Ukraine. I don't think you're saying that. I think you're you know, sort of saying that out of this war, out of the invasion, there's, uh, you know, a lot of ethnic hatred uh, that sort of bubbles to the surface because of it. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm not saying that. You know, the people I stayed with in the hospital were not Nazis. Um, most of the Ukrainian soldiers and wounded ones I talked to uh, were not Nazis. And also, I mean, of course, I find it very understandable that the Russian invasion should have produced you know, a mood of hatred in Ukraine uh, for for Russians. You know, after all, you know, the First and Second World Wars very naturally produced hatred of Germany and Britain. Um, but, uh, you know, in a country which can, you know, still contains a substantial Russian minority and a much larger pop population which speaks Russian um, and which desires and has said is non-negotiable to get back um, what are overwhelmingly Russian or Russian-speaking territories. Uh, you know, the, the Ukrainian government should, you know, remember that this kind of language is not just um, directed against, you know, Russians in Russia, uh, but it is inevitably going to be felt as an insult by sections of their own population. Incidentally, I mean, if you, uh, I should mention the name of the second advisor. Um, you know, if, if your listeners want to get a taste of what I mean, they, they should um, look up interviews with Mikhail Podolyak, um, who's a, an extreme nationalist advisor to Zelensky, and listen to what he has to say, you know, about um, <clears throat> Russians, and, and once again, not, not just Russians in Russia, but, you know, Russians in territory that he claims as Ukrainian. Now, uh, very little of what he has to say has been translated by the Western media, uh, oddly enough. Uh, but, you know, if you go to Radio Free, you look at his interviews on Radio Free Europe, for example, uh, you know, you can use the automatic translate um, if you have it on your computers and you'll see what I mean. Incidentally, uh, I, I should say, of course, that um, there, there has also been, you know, abominable, loathsome, hate-filled language used by um, Russian, some Russian media figures 
uh, in particular uh, against the Ukrainians as, as a people and against Ukraine as a state. And this is also absolutely detestable, completely wrong. Um, and um, also, you know, the, the, the other way around uh, makes it much more difficult for Russia to make uh, any sort of appeal to the Ukrainian or partly Ukrainian population in the areas that it has conquered. With regards to where things stand in this conflict right now, uh, you have a lot of people saying, uh, you know, this cannot end until Ukraine uh, gets back Crimea. Um, I have had heard other people argue that that is maybe an unrealistic goal. Uh, how do you think we should be thinking about Crimea in regards to this conflict? Well, <clears throat> to any individual, who says this war must not end until Ukraine reconquers Crimea, I would say, well, you obviously, if you believe that, you have a moral duty to go to Ukraine yourself to fight. And I, I've said again and again, uh, you know, anyone from the uh, Washington pundit class uh, who wants to volunteer for the Ukrainian army, I will kiss them goodbye at the airport and I will buy their uniform for them. Um, but uh, I um, don't have to take seriously as a moral point uh, people sitting in their safe armchairs and offices back in Britain or the USA um, and uh, trying to get other people to die. Uh, the point is, uh, and incidentally, there's uh, just been a piece in The Guardian quoting several, uh, by Richard Norton Taylor, quoting several senior retired British military officers on this, uh, that if uh, Ukraine looks as if it is in a position to retake Crimea, Crimea is of such emotional and strategic importance to Russia. Uh, and by the way, I mean, by most accounts, a majority of the substantial majority of the population there wants to you know, be part of Russia, uh, that their analysis is that Russia would, in fact, escalate uh, very radically uh, if um, and wouldn't go directly to nuclear war, but would begin a spiral of retaliation which could end in nuclear war. And, um, you know, various people have started quoting President Kennedy's so-called peace speech at American University shortly before he was assassinated, in which he said that, you know, anyone who wants to impose on a nuclear power the choice between a humiliating retreat and nuclear war um, must be suffering from what he called a collective death wish for mankind. So, I mean, I don't know whether uh, Ukrainian recapture of Crimea is possible. I do know that it would be <clears throat> quite appallingly dangerous. And incidentally, I mean, the Biden administration has sent wildly different signals on this um, because uh, Antony Blinken last week in Helsinki uh, went out of his way to rule out the possibility even of a ceasefire in Ukraine. Uh, unless Ukraine recovers all its lost territory. Previously, there was a leak from the Biden administration saying, um, and we're not exactly sure from whom, 
saying, no, um, you know, we don't really want uh, Ukraine to attack Crimea. Um, we want Ukraine to be in a position to threaten Crimea in order to get Russia to come to the negotiating table and basically agree to give up everything else, or maybe everything else but Crimea and the Donbass, in other words, everything it's taken since the invasion last year. The problem is, though, it's, it's a twofold problem. Uh, the first is that, uh, you know, if you send mixed signals of this kind to, to, to Russia, uh, inevitably the Russians are going to take, you know, the most pessimistic or fearful view and assume that the actual American intention is to drive them out of Crimea. The second point is um, that, you know, these, these private statements from the Biden administration have talked about bringing Russia to the negotiating table, but the Ukrainian government has stated again and again in recent months that the return of all territory, including Crimea, is non-negotiable, that they will not negotiate on that basis, even you know, for a temporary ceasefire. Well, at that point, it's not quite clear you know, what a negotiation could consist of, uh, unless the Biden administration or a future American administration were prepared basically to thump the table and introduce you know, its own peace plan uh, and insist on the Ukrainian government accepting it. Now, that would require great moral courage on the part of an American administration, because of course it would be bitterly criticized. But it is essential uh, because if you read the statements of you know, Ukrainian politicians, including the head of Ukraine's Defense Council, some of them have said absolutely explicitly, if Zelensky tries to do any any kind of deal with Russia at all, um, he will write his political death warrant. Basically, he'll be overthrown. So the only way in which Zelensky could agree to a compromise would be even a provisional compromise under a ceasefire would be if he could claim to his own elites that he had no choice, that he was forced into it by the United States. Uh, but you know that that would uh, take a yeah I mean that that would take a lot of moral courage on the part of a U.S. administration. It, it, incidentally, there was an extremely interesting statement uh, a couple of days ago um, uh, by Margarita Simonyan, who's the head of Russia Today and you know a big big figure in the Russian media, and very much a, an unofficial spokeswoman uh, of the Kremlin. And what she said on the record, uh, you can find this on YouTube, was that uh, she, she praised the Indonesian peace proposal and said that Russia should uh, accept a ceasefire along the present battle lines uh, and a future referenda under United Nations supervision in the areas occupied by Russia. Um, now, this is very important because uh, we're always told that, oh, Putin has not you know, reduced his aims in Ukraine at all. Uh, well, I mean, if she is 
reflecting the, the, the views of the Kremlin, then it's obvious that in fact, uh, Putin has reduced his aims, um, as indeed one would expect, because Russia has been defeated again and again. Right. I, I was uh, going to say, you know, um, it's interesting to hear that because I, I sometimes will see these uh, characters on places like RT uh, saying, you know, uh, this line that uh, Russia is going to win, you know, within the next month and it never materializes. It seems yeah. like this war has been really disastrous uh, for Russia. <laughs> It, well, it has indeed. And I think something which we need to recognize much more is that, you, you know, given the Russian aims at the start of this war, which were clearly to try to subjugate the whole of Ukraine, turn it into a Russian client state, or failing that to break off um, really big areas of Ukraine. I mean, not just what they've got now, but Kharkov, the second uh, city of Ukraine, um, Odessa and the whole of the Black Sea coast. Uh, the, I mean, of all the Russian goals, all they've managed to do is establish a land bridge between Russia and, and, and Crimea. That's, you know, everything else has failed. Um, so in other words, the Ukrainians and we um, have already achieved a tremendous victory. And that's not just a victory in terms of Russian goals at the start, you know, when they launched the invasion. Uh, it's a tremendous victory in terms of the past 350 years or more, it's 400 years, uh, during which the great majority of Ukraine um, has been subordinate to Russia or part of Russia. Uh, whatever now happens, uh, unless. Um, I mean, look, one can imagine disastrous scenarios. I mean, God forbid if America gets into a war with China and loses, for example, uh, and American and Western support for Ukraine collapses, then of course things would look very different. But barring a disaster on that scale, it is now certain that the great majority of Ukraine will be fully independent of Russia and will, to the best of its ability, move towards membership of the West. Now, you know, that is a colossal victory. Uh, and it does you know, raise the question of, you know, whether trying for not just a huge victory, but total victory over Russia uh, is um, not a bit hubristic and overambitious on our part. And of course, when dealing with a nuclear power, um, appallingly dangerous because uh, so many of the people who want this uh, say explicitly, either in public or in private, that their hope by doing this is not just to drive Russia out of the whole of Ukraine, but it is to bring down the Putin regime and even uh, to break up the Russian state, um, or at the very least to gravely weaken Russia and end it, you know, end, end any claim to be a, to be a great power. Uh, well, you know, I mean, even some quite moderate Russians, but who regard themselves as patriots have said, you know, uh, that's why we have nuclear weapons to prevent something like that happening. And I have also been told by Russian friends that just as uh, America would use nuclear weapons in the last resort, 
to defend Hawaii and Pearl Harbor, uh, so Russia should use nuclear weapons to defend Crimea and Sevastopol, because they see the two cases as identical. It's interesting because one thing I always hear um, in response to concerns about nuclear escalation uh, with regards to this conflict is people uh, will say to me, well, you know, Putin was uh, bluffing about nukes at the start of this conflict. Uh, we shouldn't believe him now um, when it comes to nuclear threats. How do you respond to people who uh, try to make that claim? Well, it's the difference between you know, partial defeat, which Russia has always has already suffered, and total defeat, which I think would probably lead to the, the at the very least, the fall of Putin and his closest associates. Um, uh, and, you know, if you look at the splits which are developing in the, the, the Russian elites, um, at that point, there is a good chance uh, that there would be some form of civil war in Russia, uh, or at least armed clashes at the top. Um, and, uh, you know, just because Russia has not used nuclear weapons to save Kherson does not mean that it will not use them uh, to save Sevastopol. Uh, America did not use nuclear weapons, although there were some who advocated that, including General MacArthur, uh, to achieve complete victory, or, or uh, as appeared at one stage, to stave off complete defeat in Korea. Uh, if, um, you know, in a parallel universe, the Koreans or the Vietnamese um, had been in a position to uh, attack what Americans regarded as America, American territory, then you know, that, that would have been a very different matter. And as a former CIA, CIA analyst friend of mine, um, said uh, the problem you know about um, threatening to cross Russian red lines uh, is that we won't know that we've crossed them uh, until we have crossed them and then it will be too late um, but certainly I regard um, uh, the threat of certainly of crime, losing Crimea probably losing the Eastern Donbass uh, as the ultimate red line. Um, and, you know, when we speak of red lines, um, there is another parallel um, that we should, um, we should remember, uh, which is that among many, many other analysts, the present head of the CIA, William Burns, uh, when he was ambassador to Moscow, as recorded in his memoir, The Back Channel, uh, minuted the Bush administration to say that Ukrainian membership of NATO being drawn into, you know, an anti-Russian military alliance, uh, he called it the ultimate Russian red line um, uh, on which everybody he had talked to in the Russian establishment was united um, that Russia uh, must fight to prevent this. And he warned you know, that an attempt to bring Ukraine into NATO uh, would very likely provoke uh, a war. So we were warned. I'm not head of the CIA. I think that's probably an unlikely career move in my part. Uh, but I've been warning about this since 1995. So, of course, and many others, three 
former US ambassadors to Moscow have done so. No, four if you count George Cannon, the greatest of them all. And you know, uh, go, go back to, to the 90s, a long, long list of US diplomats, former senators um, and former leading US military figures warned against NATO expansion and predicted that it would lead to just this. So then the main reason I wanted to have you on was um, you recently wrote a piece with uh, George Beebe uh, about uh, the chief of the Wagner Group, uh, the infamous Wagner Group, and, uh, you know, what seems like some factional infighting within the Russian elite. And uh, I think that's a very interesting topic and a very important one that doesn't get covered that much. I recently spoke to uh, Dr. Marlene Lorel about that very topic. Uh, and it does seem like on the face of it, uh, there is sort of factional infighting and maybe uh, a loss of trust in uh, Putin, or at least um, if not Putin, then the military leadership in some ways amongst certain factions of the Russian elite. Well, yes, and not surprisingly, uh, because they've been a disaster. Um, I mean, frankly, it's it's astonishing that the defense minister Shoigu and the chief of the general staff Gerasimov are still in their positions. I mean, if they had the honor of, of sewer rats, they wouldn't just have resigned, they'd have shot themselves by now um, for, you know, their, their monstrous incompetence, the corruption that they have at the very least tolerated in the military, um, their failure to assess the situation in Ukraine accurately, or maybe their cowardice in failing to report on this to Putin and to report on the real state of the uh, Russian armed forces. So yes, I mean, there is very widespread criticism of the military leadership under the surface in Russia. And um, Prigozhin, uh, whose, you know, private military company, uh, have done much of the, the real fighting, at least the successful fighting in Ukraine, such as it has been, um, has developed bitter resentment of of these people. Now, in his latest uh, remarks, which George and I uh, analysed, he's gone one step further. He still claims to be loyal to Putin, but his his latest um, in interview attacks the Russian elites in general um, and the wealthy elites and uh, accuses them of, of corruption. Um, and of, uh, you know, sending the, essentially the children of the poor out to die while, in his words, their, their children shake their asses on, on beaches. Um, and this does look very like uh, an attempt by Prigozhin to, at the very least, secure his position, but perhaps also to create a base for some kind of future political struggle. Well, especially Putin's, considering, I mean, Putin is not going to live forever. He's not going to be in power forever. So there's going to be a succession struggle at some point. Well, indeed. And according to the Russian constitution, uh, Putin has to uh, run for president again early next year. Um, of course, no doubt he can, well, either just simply just, you know, rig the election so that he wins or postpone the elections on the grounds that Russia is at war. But every now and again, you hear, uh, I mean, 
I, I really cannot say whether there is any basis for this. The idea that Putin might do what Yeltsin did in, in 1999, uh, when Yeltsin handed over to Putin um, and stepped down and hand over to a chosen successor. Uh, but of course, um, that could well open up deep splits within the Russian establishment, uh, because uh, if the successor was somebody from the top of the Russian security establishment, I wouldn't like to be in Prigozhin's shoes. Um, and on the other hand, uh, if the successor were some kind of semi not an outsider, but from a different branch of the Russian elites, uh, I can well imagine how he would, you know, try to evade some responsibility for the war by turning Shoigu and Gerasimov into scapegoats. So yes, I mean, there is the, the potential for serious splits in future. And what Prigozhin is really doing, it seems to me, is that he is claiming the anti-corruption political mantle of Alexei Navalny, who of course is now in jail. Uh, but Prigozhin is doing so from a much stronger position, because of course Prigozhin has emerged as a hero of this war uh, and you know has been very widely praised in the in, in the Russian media and by elements of the state, uh, you know, for the um, the achievements of, of Wagner. And so his criticism of corruption is very much not just as an insider, but as a patriotic nationalist. I was going to say, so he, he's sort of coming at it differently than Navalny in that he's, you know, still claiming to be loyal to Putin. Well, not just loyal to Putin, but but I mean, the, the important thing is, you, you know, Prigozhin is not looking for Western support, very sensibly, since he wouldn't get it. Um, you know, too many um, opposition politicians in in Russia and other places, seems to me, over the years, uh, have somehow unconsciously found themselves effectively uh, running as if they were running for American support. Well, you don't get to be president of Russia that way. You need Russian support. And that, especially in present circumstances, means, you know, being able to portray yourself as a Russian nationalist. Um, so Prigozhin cannot, or certainly it would be very, very difficult uh, to um, arrest or jail Prigozhin. Uh, but um, <laughs> if I were him, I would check, uh, I would have my own very loyal mechanics, check every helicopter I ever flew in and every plane. And if I were visiting the front line, uh, I would be um, looking out very carefully for um, uh, the possibility that there was a Russian sniper somewhere behind me. What does uh, this succession struggle, if it's occurring now and if it's brewing, what does this mean uh, in the near and sort of midterm future, in your opinion? Oh, I just don't know. I mean, you know, the the, the, the Russian inner circle uh, around Putin has become so, well, A, so narrow and B, so opaque compared to the way it was, you know, even 10 years ago, 
uh, that is very, very difficult to say. I mean, what one can say is that splits are obviously beginning. Um, and, you know, as we've discussed that, uh, however, the regime tries to spin it, um, the war so far has been a disaster. Uh, and um, it seems to me, I mean, I, I'm not, you understand, making any any uh, parallel between Putin and um, the Nazis, because, you know, this is an endless, endless parallel that really, you know, doesn't help elucidate anything. But it seems to me that in many ways, um, the rhetoric of the regime has changed. Uh, it, you know, it cannot now claim to be on its way to complete victory in Ukraine, whatever you know, idiots in the Russian media may say. The general line is, uh, you know, that Russia is now trying to save itself from complete defeat at the hands of the West, not of Ukraine, but of the West. Right. Um, it's sort of this idea that, you know, um, if Russia loses, this will be, you know, the, the existential death of Russia. Yes, well, I mean, it won't. I mean, that. let's be clear, there are, you know, elements in the West and certainly, you know, in Poland and the Baltic states and obviously in, in Ukraine who do want that. They want to actually destroy and break up Russia as a state. Um, or at the very least, you know, return Russia to the chaos of the 1990s, uh, from which, of course, most ordinary Russians suffered terribly. So this isn't altogether wrong on their part. Uh, but uh, even if things stop short of that, um, uh, certainly the, the, the loss of Crimea and Sevastopol would end, it would eliminate Russian presence and influence in the Mediterranean. Um, and it would mark really the historic end, the death knell of Russia's status as a, as a great power. Well, you know, once again, flip things round. Uh, a kind of fringe, of, well, two fringes, one of realists, the other of the left, point out from time to time that as far as ordinary American citizens are concerned, um, you know, protected by two oceans and a nuclear deterrent, um, and by the way, with strong and unassailable allies in Western Europe and in Japan, and so forth, you know, it, it issues um, like uh, who wins in Ukraine or, um, you know, ceding hegemony to China in most of East Asia, you know, really don't affect their lives very much. And America would still survive as a country, even if it lost its superpower status. Try telling that to the so-called blob in Washington. You know, if if you say that uh, in a think tank in um, in Washington, believe me, uh, your chances of becoming chief deputy assistant to the deputy assistant secretary of state for dog washing in a future administration are over. In other words, you know, the American establishment will fight or send other people to fight to the bitter end to preserve, you know, America's position as a superpower, not just as a superpower, but as the only superpower in the world. Um, 
one should not expect the establishments of other great powers to do less. I just had two more brief questions. The first was, uh, you know, I, I think you and I and my listeners are very skeptical of the U.S. foreign policy blob. Uh, I do think that there are some people that go so far into the other direction of they they think that, you know, in opposing the foreign policy blob, um, they're just going to believe anything that comes out of, say, uh, the American equivalent of RT or Sputnik. And I, I think some people get pulled in a little bit too much by this, um, you know, rah-rah Russia uh, stuff on the sort of fringes of the political spectrum. And uh, I, I'm not sure that Russia, I mean, we've talked about this, but Russia is really not in a good place um, right now. Well, and any propaganda we may be hearing to the contrary just seems like nonsense in my view. Absolutely. Uh, and um, you're, you're quite right. And I mean, I, th I think it's that some people have developed such hostility to, you know, the American establishment and uh, um, American power uh, that basically they see anybody opposed to uh, America as a friend who must be supported. Well, that is certainly not my my position. And I mean, I do think one has to say again and again, I mean, that the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has, you know, A, been a disaster um, for, I mean, obviously for, for, for Ukraine and the world, but also for Russia itself. And secondly, um, that Putin and his uh, immediate uh, associates uh, have, and his, his regime have also turned out to be a disaster. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine was illegal, immoral, uh, justified by very crude, realist um, conceptions of, of power. Uh, but then, you know, <laughs> if you're going to base yourself on those uh, considerations, then you damn well better, you know, make sure that you can win. And the regime has also turned out to be extremely incompetent as well as criminal. So, um, no, I mean, one one must absolutely condemn this invasion and hope that this Russian regime uh, can be replaced. Uh, but one must also be realistic. Um, if that you know, requires uh, a serious risk of nuclear annihilation, then you know, we, we should once again, I mean, remember what uh, Kennedy and indeed Eisenhower had to say on that subject it's you know it's not worth it and of course secondly uh, there's no guarantee at all looking at figures like Prigozhin that the successor to Putin would be any better so uh, I mean essentially you know we, we have to base ourselves if we're sensible you know on a a combination of respect for international law not the so-called rules-based order, which is you know whatever America says it is on a given day, but international law and basic morality, uh, but also um, common sense when it comes to you know what um, Kennedy called the general interest of mankind, uh, and you know that shouldn't I think be <laughs> as difficult uh, as some people appear to find it. I mean in this. You know, I, I worked as a journalist for many years, but I was trained as a historian. 
and um obviously the, the the reason why people keep coming back to the you know the the accusation that putin is is like hitler and that this is like the second world war uh, is that obviously you know the nazis represented absolute evil and there could be no compromise with them but of course that was only one war out of even if you take um, modern you know european history dozens of wars um and in most cases you know one can as with the outbreak of war in 1914 uh, assign chief responsibility to one side in that case the germans and the austrians but you know not many serious historians would assign sole responsibility you know or or completely exculpate you know the um the follies and the you know immoderate and you know megalomaniac ambitions of some of the other powers uh you know so um you know it's but we shouldn't have to wait 110 years um i'm sure that historians 110 years from now if there are any uh, will take you know a similar view of the ukraine war um but we shouldn't have to wait 110 years we should be capable of achieving some kind of balance now while once again to repeat myself condemning putin and his regime for the invasion uh, and uh supporting ukraine to defend itself and imposing sanctions on russia i you know i support all these propositions but the, even the uh I, I was curious what you thought of arms to ukraine even uh, i believe in supplying arms to ukraine but as both i and my institute have said again and again it has to be linked to a political strategy giving massive amounts of arms and other aid to ukraine uh, without any control, any attempt at control over Ukrainian behavior, Ukrainian goals, what Ukraine does with them, uh, is a betrayal of the American people and the British people. You know, our governments have sworn an oath to defend their countries and their people. They haven't sworn an oath to Ukraine. And we cannot hand our, we should not hand you know, the basic safety, even potentially the very survival of our countries to any other state, uh, even you know, a state we deeply sympathize with, as in the case of Ukraine. So, you know, once again, uh, I, I absolutely endorse support for Ukraine, but it has to be linked to a sensible political strategy rooted in the interests of the United States and NATO. So in closing, because I, I know you have to go, I know you have an, another engagement, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't talk much about the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. There's a lot of talk about that right now. What I really wanted to end on, though, was, uh, you know, is are we sort of in a stillmate situation right now where, it, you know, Russia is not going to give in, Ukraine isn't going to give in, or where, where are we moving towards uh, just from your perspective with regards to this conflict? And we'll leave it at that. To be honest, I don't know. Um, I, I really don't. Uh, That's a more honest answer than a lot of people have been giving lately, so I appreciate <laughs> well, that. Well, thank you. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of evidence from Bakhmut over the past six months for stalemate. Uh, on the other hand, the Ukrainians have 
surprised us again and again and may do so in future. Uh, or perhaps the Russians may surprise us. Um, uh, so I'm not going to make any predictions for the military course of events. I would just like to end by saying or repeating that whatever the military outcome of this offensive, I think that when that outcome is clear, it will point towards uh, both the need for and increased support for a ceasefire. Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Levin, for coming on Parallax Views, and uh, we'll have to have you uh, on again uh, when there's further developments. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you again. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Anatole Levin. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. At this point in time, your support is more necessary than ever. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.